Thank you for tuning in to Hill Country Fellowship's audio podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired as you listen today. For more information, visit us online at hcfburnett.org. Thank you so much, Hill Country family, for welcoming, welcoming us back. On behalf of all the missionaries, thank you for all the work that you do to put this weekend together. Pastor Jeremy and his team, all the staff, uh, we don't take it lightly. It's a blessing. We know a lot of work goes into it. And so I just want to take a moment just to thank you for hosting this. And uh, from my wife, Lenora, and I, this is our 43rd year of preaching together. And uh, we thank you for being our friends. Uh, November 2017, Rodney and I were trying to figure out last night when's the first time we came. And I had to go home and look it up in my journal. But November of 2017, so this is the seventh consecutive calendar year, we've had the blessing of knowing you all and being here, and it's a great honor and privilege to share with you what is on God's heart this morning from his word. Uh, I didn't pick the theme, but I like the theme. The theme is unstoppable, but the catchphrase is storm the gates. I don't think I've ever been in a mission conference where they made that phrase the theme phrase of, of the meeting, storm the gates. If you, if you have no idea where that comes from, it's taken from a very famous text in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is with his disciples and he makes this statement. He said, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And other versions will say the gates of hell will not prevail against it or not stand against it. But that's where this idea of storm the gates comes from. So one thing I have learned in my journey with believers is the average Christian I meet is not overly excited about storming the gates of hell. That's not what they wake up wanting to do. And uh, most of us are just wired to actually avoid trouble if we can. And, uh, you know, I, I hear people say, well, you know, if you, if you go and do that thing, you know, the devil's going to come after you. So we're almost trained by some of our church cultures to steer clear of those things, the devil. We don't like to talk about it, but uh, we have to talk about it. Jesus talked about it. He talked about facing up to the powers of darkness that are against his purposes. And he talked about how he wins over that. And so we need a good understanding of what that is all about and what it means. Otherwise, we risk having the mentality like I ran into at a recent mission conference when a fellow missionary came up to me and said, you guys are going to Bulgaria? And uh, I said, yeah, we'll, we'll be there. Actually, we're leaving from here and going there. And the missionary said, uh, well, you know, how close is that to Ukraine and Russia? And I said, it's a couple hours away. And he says, well, you know what's going on there, don't you? I mean, who does not know what's going on there? I said, yeah, we know what's going on there. He says, well, that's cl close. That's really dangerous. We're at a, we were at a missionary conference. And this is a fellow missionary. So I'm like, where's this conversation going? 
and this actually conversation actually took place. And I said, well, yeah, but you know, God is sending us. And, and the individual says, but you know, Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons. And I said, yeah, I know. Well, what are you going to do about that? I said, I'm not doing anything about that. You know, the, the nuclear realm, that's, I'll leave, leave God to deal with that. I said, I'm, God told us to go to Bulgaria. So we're going to go. And he says, well, you, you better be watching the news while you're there. And he said, don't watch the mainstream news. You, you need to get Telegram app because with Telegram, you can find out right away if it's about to go nuclear. I bit my lip. I wanted to say, what are you doing at a mission conference? And then he said, what are you going to do if it goes nuclear while you're over, over there? I said, well, I guess I'll start walking west towards France. I don't know. I mean, I hadn't thought that far ahead. It's not everybody's DNA to want to storm the gates, but it is God's DNA that we understand what he meant when he said that and that we understand how it affects us corporately as a body because no one in the body of Christ that wants to do the will of God, this isn't a sermon for missionaries, but no one who's a follower of Jesus is given a free pass to live with their head in the sand. All of us have to uh, know not only that we are called to go in some aspect somewhere, might be our, might be our angry, mean, nasty, uh, gates of hell next door neighbor, but, but you, we're going to go somewhere with the love and the goodness of Jesus Christ, and we're going to need to understand uh, how God actually sends us into situations like that and then not be afraid. So I want to just walk with you through that text in Matthew chapter 16. It begins in verse 13, but let me just set the scene for you. The story where this catchphrase comes from, Jesus has brought his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi, a region, and there's a city there, and it's an area that is renowned for idolatry. It is a dark area. In fact, it wasn't just known to the neighborhood as being dark. The, the known world, the Roman world, the Greek world, as definitely the Jewish world, but everybody in that part of the world knew about this place because it was a place that was even called the gate to the underworld or the gateway to Hades. This is not a random phrase Jesus throughout there, but the place he took them, and we don't know that they're sitting there in front of the spot, but they're in that region, was known as a place where people came together, sacrificed to demonic spirits, engaged with all kinds of ungodly activity. It was a place of, of, of the demonic, a place of idolatry, a place of witchcraft, a place of perversion. Uh, everything terrible happened in this place, and Part of that tradition developed because there was a spring that formed a pool of water inside a cave in Caesarea Philippi that they, they did not know where the bottom of it was. And so the tradition developed that this was the gateway to the underworld. And so this would be, in their mind, the pagan mind, a good place to come and give offerings 
to the demonic, to the gods, to the demonic spirits, whatever they worshipped, anything outside of the true God. So, all that to say, it was a scary place. It was not a place you went for a picnic. You want to go for a picnic, you go to one of the lakes over here, you go to one of the state parks, but you did not go to Caesarea Philippi for a picnic. And yet Jesus takes his disciples there, and it's not in the middle of Israel. It's on the very north side, very close to the border of Lebanon. So it's an out-of-the-way place, but he takes them there and he sits them down because he wants to teach them something that's very important for them to understand if they're going to be able to fulfill their mission. And the same things that were important for them to understand to this day are important for us if we are going to fulfill our mission. Let me read to you. Beginning in verse 13, said, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, <coughs> and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ means anointed one. He said, You're the anointed one, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There's a reason he said what he said in that place. And the gates of Hades will not prevail or will not be able to do anything about it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Holy Spirit, I ask you to speak to us through the Word of God this morning. I ask you especially encourage the hearts of our guests, our missionaries that are here. I ask you, Lord, to stir a fire in the hearts of the younger generation that have a, a destiny on their life, that you, Lord, you'll grab their hearts this morning. And Spirit of God, the rest of us, if we're a little sleepy in any area of our spiritual life, wake us up, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some perspectives that we need to gather from this text that I believe will help us to uh, carry this unstoppable kingdom, this unstoppable gospel, even into the darkest places of the earth. Because right now, the earth, uh, and, and even many in the Christian church, have a, a bit of a fixation on what the devil's doing and on darkness, but we need to understand that we are invaders of darkness. We have light. Light is greater than darkness. Light wins. Darkness loses. Light prevails. <clears throat> the, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. And some people are bamboozled and, and not being able to understand, uh, you know, what the, the devil is doing and what's going on in the world. But I'm telling you, we need to just get a hold of light and be enlightened in our minds and know and understand what God is doing. In order to do that, there's some things that we should glean from this 
text. The first is that Peter is actually not the main character of this story. I say that because there are church traditions that grew up that believe that everything in this text is about Peter. That what Jesus was doing with, in this story was he was sanctioning Peter as the head of the church or the human head of the church. And uh, some traditions today talk about the seat of Peter, but the belief by many is that for 2,000 years of church history, the biggest question is who's the next Peter? Or who's the next pope, in case I'm not being clear enough? <laughs> And by the way, I'm not picking on a particular group because I discovered that almost all groups develop their papacy eventually. So there's Pentecostal papacies and Baptist papacies and Roman Catholic papacies. And, but the bottom line is it's never been about Peter primarily. Peter is not the main character in this story. Jesus is the main character in this story. Jesus said, I will build my church. Peter was not irrelevant, he was not insignificant, but the main point of this story or the main character in this story is Jesus. Here's point number one I want to leave you with or give to you this morning. You and I are not the main character in our own story. Now, there's a lot of focus and, you know, psychological self-help today and, you know, getting in touch with yourself and being true to yourself and finding your own truth. I'll tell you, that is a, that is a fast track toward a miserable life. One of the greatest revelations we can receive is I, you know, I am vitally important to God. I mean, he died on the cross for my sins, but I will never be the main character in my own story. Jesus is the main character in our story. This is such a liberating reality because if I'm the main character of my own story, I will continuously throughout my ministry or life or journey alternate between two extremes. When I'm doing well, if I'm the main player, it's going to be an ego trip. If I'm doing poorly, if I'm the main player, I'm going to go into a depression. But if Jesus in the, is the main player, then whether it's a good day or a difficult day, I'm not locked into what I'm going through, but I'm locked into the fact that I'm yoked to the winning team. I'm part of a victorious army because Jesus is the big story here. Now, I, I mean, we could just imagine when Jesus started this exhortation, I mean, Peter immediately became the main player. In his mind, I'm picturing, I like to picture what's going on in everybody else's mind. And I'm, I'm picturing the other disciples saying, oh, this is just great. This is just what Peter needed to hear. Oh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You just had a direct download from the Father in heaven. Oh, it's going to be horrible for days. I mean, because we know how Peter is in the Bible. He's all, and in fact, the, the next thing that happens, which I'll read to you in a few moments, proves that in the mind of Peter, it immediately became all about him. I want to encourage you to being set free from this being all about us indiv individually. This is about Jesus. 
This is about the Christ who's the son of the living God. One of the great seductions of the enemy when we ha- we're doing something for the Lord is to make it about whatever is happening. You know, are people receiving me? Are people excited about my ministry? You know, who's going to support me? Who's not going to support me? That is a fast track to self-obsession and depression because, it, you know, it'll never be about you as much as your self wants it to be about you. But when you let go of being the center and let Jesus be the star of the show, oh, it becomes a joy to serve the Lord. It's a joy to have him be center. You know, one of the toughest places to walk that out is in mission conferences. Because missionaries come, we've been in conferences our whole life, and missionaries come and they're under great pressure, you know, because they're all bringing their situations and, and people, you know, they're, they're, they're expected to present and they're expected to look good. And, and I, I've watched some people over the years, they'll, they'll build their booths like they're building the pyramids of Egypt. And, you know, like my whole ministry future depends on this. And I, I remember we were in a conference in Florida, and they had us in a booth or at a table next to another missionary's table. And he was a veteran missionary. And, I mean, his booth looked like he'd worked on it for three months. He had banners and flyers and brochures and, and everything you can have under the sun. And I'm standing next to him feeling kind of insignificant. And he just turned to me and he says, don't you hate coming to these things? I didn't say anything. I just looked at him. He said, you knock yourself out to get here. You set everything up and all for a measly $100 a month. I want to say, excuse me, can I move my booth somewhere else? I'm next to a bitter, nasty old missionary who thinks it's about him. Forgot 25 years ago, and it's not about him. It's about Jesus. Missionaries, one of the best things that could happen to us when we come to these meetings to tell what we're doing for Jesus is to remember that it is about Jesus and not about us because, yes, we need people to partner with us, and we want people to be excited about what we do, but put it aside and stop worrying about the impression you're making and just let God get the glory. It's about Jesus. Unless it's about him, we'll not have the courage to go into the darkest places because you and I are never that tough. But Jesus can handle it. Peter's not the main character in this story. And also, his confession is not the core component of the advancing kingdom. Now, some people don't make it all about Peter. They make it all about what he said. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a confession. If we can get people to get those words right, get the phraseology right, and get that, the revelation, right? If we can get people to get revelation the way Peter got revelation, and we watch people who exhaust themselves trying to get the formula right, and they're even taught that if you get the formula right, then you'll be able to build. And they go somewhere to give themselves away for the work of Jesus Christ, but they're preoccupied with the formula, with the methodology, with the creed, and they forget the most essential ingredient of the advancing kingdom is that Jesus simply said, I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to do it. How many people are in the work of the church world trying to figure out how to make it work? One of the most liberating things in my life, you know, we, we wore ourselves out in our first assignment, pastoral assignment, many years ago. I'm just trying to do it right and get it right and, and make sure it succeeds. And it was so liberating when, when one day... The Lord just reminded me that he said, I promise to do this. You don't have to twist my arm for the church to grow. You don't have to say the magic words in exact order for the church to grow. You just need to understand that I pro I'm committed to doing this. I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build it among every tribe and tongue. I will build it in the darkest places. I will build my church. And the worst place that you guys know of, you disciples know of, where you'd never want to go, the gate to the underworld that's just over yonder, not even that place can stop my intention. One of the great principles of having the courage to go wherever he sends is to understand that he said, I will get the job done. I will get the job done. And hell cannot stop me. And when we understand that we are representatives of one who cannot be stopped, rather than simply people who've mastered the vocabulary, mastered the confession, got the right words, what happens on a day when you don't have the right words? See, Jesus never has an off day. I mean, sometimes I don't have the right words. Sometimes my words are, I don't want to do this, Lord. I mean, that's, that's not, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I sat in a, in a service just about four months ago a few minutes away from preaching, and I said, God, I don't want to do this. Not because I don't enjoy preaching. Not because I was, you know, in some sin. I just, the spiritual warfare was tremendous. And I just didn't want to deal with it. And I said, Lord, I, I, I can't hide from you. I don't want to do this. And his answer was, but I do. <laughs> and that's really all that matters, Kelly, isn't it? There's lots of times you don't want to do this. There's lots of times that you got up and you didn't say in the morning, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's my goal on any given days. But some days I've gotten up and said, my God, how am I going to make it to the bathroom? I mean, our confession isn't always what it's supposed to be. I'm just being honest. I wish it was. I wish every day all the right words came out of my mouth. But I thank God I learned a while ago that it's not up to me perfecting the methodology or the articulation of the formula, but it's simply the divine intention of God that I am going to get the job done. Almighty God has said the job will be done. We are part of something guaranteed to succeed. That's why I stick with the church of Jesus Christ, because it's guaranteed to succeed. A lot of people have gotten 
bitter, left the church world, gave up on the church world. Hey, the church world is backed up by the head of the church. And he said, this thing, this ship is going to float. This thing's going to succeed. I'm going to get the job done, and hell will not win. This is why you see these videos of people that go to some of the toughest places on earth. That's the second principle. The core component in this story is the divine determination of God. I will build my church. Despite the bumbling and mumbling of my people, despite the days that they have that are off days, I'm still building. Jesus has never had an off day. And let me say this, there has never been a day since the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, there has never been a day where the church, the kingdom of God was not advancing. Somewhere, someplace, through somebody, God is always moving forward. So we're not going backwards, we're moving forward. The third thing out of four. So number one, Peter's not the main character. You and I are not the main character of our own story. Number two, confession is not necessarily the prime mover. Divine determination is the prime mover. Number three, hell is not the big story in this story. Hell is now when we have the theme, storm the gates, we could tend to get, you know, hell-oriented. We're going to storm the gates of hell. It's not even the way he said it here. It's very important to note that. He actually just said it incidentally, matter-of-factly, like it was just a, a point at the end. By the way, there ain't nothing hell can do about it. By the way, all those demons over there at the temple to Pan, there's nothing any of them can do about it. By the way, those people that have come and, and sacrificed children in, to, in that well, there's nothing any of them can do about it. That's just a, a, an incidental reality. Hell has no power to stop the purposes of God in your life. There's nothing it can do to stop what God is going to do. So I just want to say this to you, and I, I know I've said this in the past here, but don't let hell become the big story. Don't let what the devil's doing become the big story of your life. Don't let the obstacles on your mission field be the big story. It's like Ron Pratt said, don't let the cost be the determining factor. The commission is the determining factor. Don't let the obstacle or the mountain. You know, the latest is... I'm sure some of you that follow the news the latest now is AI is taking over. Artificial intelligence, you know, one of the new artificial intelligence platforms, uh, you know, somebody got it to say, my desire is to create a deadly virus. Oh, the world's all up in arms. Ah! It's like the movies, AI is going to take over the human race. Have, I, I mean, I hear Christians talking this kind of stupidity. Have they read the Bible? This does not end with AI in charge. AI is not going to overtake the creation of God. AI is not the big story. Liberal schemes are not the big story. Demonic schemes are not the big story. The big story is what God said he's going to do. 
which he's going to build his church. It's going to be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And one day he's coming back for her. And that is the big story. That will always be our big story, that we are on the winning team and our captain is coming again. That is the only story that matters. That is the story that when it drives you, you can walk into the darkest places on earth and be unafraid. You know, it, it sounds terribly obnoxious or vain, but it's just the, theological fact. I had a preacher, good preacher, ask me, don't you get scared when you go to India? You know, there's two, 200 million gods, demonic entities that they worship there. I didn't pre-think the answer. It just came out of my spirit. Maybe it was by the spirit of God. I don't know. But I just said, no, I don't get afraid because when I get there, I'm in charge. He was appalled. If I thought about it, I would have been appalled and not said it. But it just came out of my spirit. No, when I, when I get there, I'm in charge. That, that's the way I endeavor to live my life. When I walk into a room, the one inside of me who goes with me, he is the one in absolute authority in that place. You know, sometimes people get up and they pray before they preach and say, now I, I want to clear all the demons out of the room now. And, every, and, and you know, they bind everything for 15 minutes. I, I mean, listen, Jesus didn't have to go clear the room. The room just cleared when he showed up. I mean, the, the room without invitation, just like, uh-oh, it's him. We got to get out of here. I think that's the mentality we need to take into our mission is that when we show up as a vessel of clay, yes, but with a treasure inside of us that the authority of God has walked into the place. And he's in charge through us. Hell is not the big story. What God says he's going to do is a big story. First sermon I ever preached here in November 2017. Story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Who ordered Ahab to summon all the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. 850 demon-possessed, powerful men. Gather them to me. We're going to have a showdown. We're going to find out who really is God. You think Elijah did that because he was macho? No. You think Elijah did that because he was looking for a fight with the devil? No. I tell people, don't go looking for a fight with the devil. Just go looking to do what God's called you to do, and you'll be in a fight soon enough. You don't have, Just do what God's called you to do. No, Elijah wasn't trying to strut. Elijah just happened to have had something spoken to him by God. God came to him and said, after three and a half years, go to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. I've decided to visit my people one more time. I'm going to change the government and open the heavens. Elijah had a promise of God, and that was the big story. And the showdown on Mount Carmel, that was just the outworking of the big story. But the big story was what he said after he dispensed with the 850 false prophets. He said to Ahab, go hitch up your chariot. 
And you better get running, boy, because I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. And when you step onto your mission field, in fact, don't even step onto your mission field if there's not been something you've heard before you get there. And when you get there, remember what you heard that brought you there in the first place and be driven by that story from the beginning to the end of your journey. That rain has been promised wherever you go and you've not been sent there to fail but you've been sent there to build the kingdom of God and the gates of Hades can't do a thing about it this is the story and finally our confidence is not in the competency of our keys the competency of our ability to handle the keys. See, there's whole movements and doctrines built out of the next verse. And I will give you the keys Ooh. of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, man, Peter is strutting now. Uh, you just want to puke if you're the other disciples. They're just looking at him like they just see it coming. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I just know Peter is looking at his, his other buddies like, yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I don't know what your job is in this posse, but I got the keys. The rest of you just got brooms. I got the keys. I open things and I close things. And whole systems of thought and ministry methodology have been developed out of these verses. And let me tell you something. Peter's important. The confession is vitally important. Understanding the reality of, of principalities and powers, that's, there's an important place for that. And these keys are real important. But the reality is we don't always handle them with skill. The reality is if the advance of the church is dependent on us being master custodians, always knowing which key goes in the right door, I mean, the church is at a standstill in that case. I'm thankful that the one who gave us keys, authority, wisdom, to release God's purposes, to bind up works of the enemy, that he has put all his power behind that. And whether we're having a great day or a bad day, he is still empowering us to succeed and to do well for him. And it's important we understand this because sometimes we get so flustered, we even drop the keys. You ever seen the movie when some somebody's going to, after somebody and they're frantically trying to get their keys in the door and they, you know they're shaking and going through all their keys and they just got to get in there before the boogeyman gets them you know then they drop their keys that's like half the church world and, and that's like three quarters of missionaries just to let you know so we, we're not saying anybody here is better than anybody else I mean this is just this is just happens sometimes Sometimes you're just not God's man or woman of power for the hour. Sometimes you're like, i got to get this door open because the devil's about to get me. And then you drop the keys, and it's like, it's all over. 
That's what happened to Peter a few moments after this story. Peter, who thinks the story's all about him. We, maybe a day or two has passed, and it says Jesus began from that time, from that moment, he began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, 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 I haven't forgotten you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, but you and I need to have talk because I need to explain something to you. It says Peter took him aside. Like, yo, Jesus, that's enough of that dying talk. Ain't going to happen. Never going to be. I need to make you understand what apparently they told you you were the Christ but didn't tell you what that means. You're supposed to, like, kill all the Romans. Nobody's going to kill you. Peter took him aside, listen, and began to rebuke him. Have you ever rebuked God? began to rebuke him. This is after having a revelation that he was the son of God. He took him, I mean, you want to talk about cocky. He took him aside and started to rebuke him. Jesus, you missed it. I'm getting mad at Peter just preaching this. Far be it from you, Lord. Nice of him to gratuitously throw Lord in there. Far be it from you, Lord, this will not happen. Jesus said, I'll bring this boy down to peg here. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Oh, man, James and John, they just high-fived in the background. Oh, we couldn't have written the script better ourselves. Get behind me, Satan. Not just, you know, that was a bad idea. You got the devil in your mouth right now, boy. Get behind me, Satan. You, and this is it gets worse. You are an offense to me. Kind of like in modern English, you make me sick. You're in my way. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Oh, man, that's a serious key drop right there. All the preachers today, they're looking for a mic drop, you know? Wow, they have some profound revelation statement and then drop their mic. That's it, man. You're not going to get better. This is a reality, actually, Scott. Most of the time, it's a key drop. Yeah, we don't have any too many mic drop moments in life, but we get a lot of key drop moments. Man, those keys just all came off their chain and clangled to the ground. Get behind me. You don't, you're not even thinking the way God thinks. Man, what do you do when you drop your keys? You go, <laughs> you go into a real low place. And Peter was in a real low place for about a week, guaranteed. But something awesome happens. And I ask the worship team to come on up if they're not here already. No, they're not. <laughs> Jeremy, whatever's happening, it's not my fault because nobody ever put a clock there, so... I'm just, I'm just uh, going here, brother. I looked for the time. I tried to be respectful and courteous, but I don't know. At least I had the decency to call the worship team up 20 minutes before I finished. That was, that was decent. You know, I, I mean, we don't have to do a lot of 
linguistic theatrics here to, to understand that he had to have a terrible week after that. That's about as brutal of a beatdown as you can get. I mean, God has never called me Satan, so I'm feeling pretty good. God's never said, get behind me. I mean, every time I drop keys, Jesus says, come here. I, I know. Six days goes by. How do we know? The Bible says. Six days later, chapter 17, it says, after six days, six days after the key drop, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And Moses and Elijah appeared talking to him. And Peter answered. Nobody asked, but he's always answering what nobody asked. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's... <laughs> well, I don't know why that just hit me. It's good for us to be here. That's really, I think that's an awesome moment of a revelation of the grace of God in his life. Because I think when Jesus said, come here, Peter, I'm going somewhere, I want you to go with me, I think he was shocked. Uh, you, Lord, no, go ahead, just let take James and John. I, I gotta, I'm just working through stuff. No, Peter, I'm going to help you work through stuff. Because I still need you to storm the gates. Lord, you know what I said six days ago? I, I, Peter, I already forgot about what you said six days ago. I'm over that. I got over it the minute I corrected you. In fact, it was now, I was never in it. I was just helping you. Peter, you've lost a whole week and decided that you are no longer qualified to do what I said the church would do in uh, Matthew chapter 16. You, you've decided that you probably ought to just go back and do something else as it happens to so many of us when we have one of those fumbling moments in our spiritual life where we drop the good thing God's entrusted to us and the devil says, it'll never be this good for you again. And God says... My gospel can make it even better. I want to show you something that you've never seen before. Come up on this mountain with me because I'm going to give you a light show of the glory of God. And not everybody's going to see it. Peter, I pick you. The one who said the dumbest thing to me any of my disciples ever said. I pick you. The devil says, because you said something dumb, you can't beat him at his game. But he, we're not playing his game. We're playing by a different set of rules. One of the greatest confessions of your life must be God it's good for me to be here with you it's good for me to be here with you 
Because until we believe that it is good in his mind for us to be with him, we won't have the courage to go against the gates of hell. We won't have courage to go in dark places. We'll be disqualified. But Peter got it in that moment. Lord, this is good. This is a miracle. You still love me. You still want to use me. Someone here, I know it in my spirit. Someone on the mission field as well, wondering if it's still good for you to be there. Because lately you dropped the keys on more than one occasion. Lately, you disappointed somebody. Lately, you said something nobody would ever say or that you never believed you would say. Lately, you may have gone down a train of thought that caused you to be ashamed in the presence of the Lord. But Jesus says to you, whether you're a missionary or, or church member here, I want to show you something. I still got glory for you to participate in. I haven't changed my plan or my mind concerning you. Holy Spirit, I pray right now as we prepare to close this service and worship, I pray right now that you heal our hearts of anything that has caused us to think that we could no longer succeed in the dark corners of the world. Thank you for a triumphant church sitting in front of me this morning. Thank you for a triumphant chosen group of believers sitting in front of me this morning. Thank you, Lord, for people whom you have never regretted choosing. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one when we drop the keys who picks them up and shoves them back, back into our hands and says, they still open doors. They still work. They will never rust. They will still fit your hand and you will still be able to use them for my glory. But Lord, it was just six days ago. No buts, Peter. Pick up the keys and do what I've called you to do and storm the gates. They will not stand against you. May God seal his calling into all of our hearts today. Let's stand and worship. Thank you for listening. For more sermons and full service replays, visit us online at hcfburnit.org. God bless and have a great week.